It's on. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we are very grateful for another night of this. We're grateful for uh, the minds here uh, seeking to ground themselves in what your scriptures, your wisdom have uh, pointed out, that we would be uh, in service to you and your son and in our marriages. In your son's name, amen. Okay, well, last, the last two nights are on revering authority. Now, in pr the previous uh, incarnation of this seminar, we had the sex talk last to keep everybody coming, you know. <laughs> the, the, and we said, well, golly, they came anyway, even though the sex was last night and it was authority tonight. Oh, my gosh, it should have been half the crowd. But you guys are righteous. Well, we wanted to uh, end with authority as an as a area of discussion. Uh, because it is probably right up there with a, a, as big as uh, sexual issues in causing disturbances in uh, a family. And uh, we had most attitudes, sex, and now authority. Doing it well and doing it poorly are the difference of night and day and how um, glorious your marriage can be. And. Uh, it is often the case when authority is talked of in marriage that too short of stress is put on the husbands because when you think of authority, you think you're having to explain to the person who has to submit uh, why and uh, what good is it and what about what if he's an idiot, you know, things like that. Um, but there's, in all the passages regarding authority in marriage, um, there's instructions to the husband. And one of the basic things that we know uh, in, um, in marriage seminars or marriage counseling, and we've, we've covered it before, this is a situation where you're supposed to be paying attention to what you're supposed to be doing. You're going to be contributing to the membership of your family, your membership of your marriage. You're going to be working to make that marrying become more pronounced. You're going to be looking very acutely, more acutely than you listen when your ears perk up when the other one's talk, being talked about, when the other person, when the wife's lack of libido or the husband's too much libido, whatever it is, you're always listening to the other person's instructions. I know that you are um, uh, have heard from me anyway that that you're supposed to be dealing with what you, by your will and your submission to God and Christ, can do about things. Um, this is a almost the worst part of dealing with marriage. Yeah, you, it's not sex is not a hard sell, okay. Neither is good attitudes. People, yeah, I, I like being around happy people versus you know depressed people. Everybody knows what the good is there, but the good isn't quite so clear. In the modern mind, the good in authority is not clear. It's a, uh, something when you bring it up, men tend to get a little nervous because the, ma the, the great she of the family might cut them off from connubial bliss if they get a little bit too big for their britches. Um, women might cringe because they know what a misogynist I am, and uh, so they're wondering, well, what is he going to say? He's going to say something unthinkable. Um, and 
so we needed to break it into these two parts. We could say, okay, we're spending tonight just on the husband. We're going to look, look at what the husband's got to do. Whether or not the wife is the bride of Christ or not. And uh, you have to realize that all sin is service to yourself. And, um, and so all sin has an element of conceit, an element of, um, you know, a lot of people know that pride is a big problem, but when you think that all sin is you choosing to serve your will, you're tempted when you're lured and enticed by your own desire. That's what leads you to sin. You being told you could have what you want. It's not the wanting, it's the you wanting. And so there's a conceit that, um, that gets in our way. So I want you to sort of sit on any kind. I, I have no idea what your thoughts are. You know, you know at All Souls. Some of you, uh, a lot of you have attended All Souls. Um, you know we don't check you at the door, make you sign some sort of statement of faith. And I, you've never been in a discussion with me of what you think of this issue. Uh, so if some of you are right on board with what the scripture says. Other of you may have some adjustment of it. Others may be in, you know, in a, a full-throated cry against it. Um, but for tonight, sit on your conceit a little bit, the way you want it done, and at least examine as men what it is that uh, is described in the scriptures. Uh, the greatest command of marriage seminars, listen to the corrections of your own gender in the same measure you hope your spouse will listen to theirs. So say your, your spouse, uh, you'd want them to hear something very clearly. Well, you've just delineated the level of clarity. You have to pay attention to the things that are told you. It's an adjustment of the golden rule. Do as you would be done by. And um, the second is like unto it. These commands are unilateral. You don't get to negotiate a settlement. Okay? You don't get to rewrite marriage according to what you and the little missus worked out. I've known couples who worked something out, who decided it was going to be 50-50. And now they're, they're in a train wreck. But um, you don't get to. This is something the Lord is telling you to do in your marriage, and you need to do it whether or not the opposite party, this applies to both sides, is doing what they're supposed to do. You don't want to wait for romance to uh, overcome your disobedience. I don't know how much romance it would take to make you obedient, but is it obedience? Is it just say, okay, I'll play nice because she's being so sweet to me? Or I'll play nice because he is, you know, taking me out and stuff. We don't want to have the only time we're rejoicing and offering ourselves as servants of one another um, when the other... Well, remember the phrase, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? Remember, we, we, it, husbands represent Christ in this picture, and very explicitly. Um, this is a government of governments. We are talking about, uh, from the very beginning of this week, we were talking about the nature of the humane agent is the person who governs themselves to the degree they govern themselves. And this subject is governing governments. 
we're talking about how do we work out in membership how this authority thing happens. Um, it's hard when, especially nowadays, young men tend to remain boys a lot longer. Uh, they don't tend to uh, man up. They tend to still cling to their, their play. And girls tend to still think they're in junior high joining a clique or something where they manipulate and, and mess with um, others. Uh, this, is, this is an adult subject. Um, not that the sex wasn't, but this is too. Um, so how do we approach? In membership, um, this issue of who's in charge here. Uh, recently, in the last, I don't know, couple of years, I've been struggling, working on philosophies of uh, governments. Um, so this is a lot of this is coming out of that separate thing, not marriage exquisitely, but it, it applies. Um, and the ultimate question in the cosmos that you have to answer is who's in charge here? And that's, in any situation, who's in charge here? Is the Lord in charge? Are you in charge? Did God delegate you to be in charge? Is the lieutenant in charge? Is the commanding officer in charge? Is my husband in charge? Are my parents in charge? Are the kids in charge? Who's in charge? Because that affects what you become as a human being, recognizing which government. Um, now, the temptation at this moment when you're talking about authority is to jump right into Ephesians 5 where it says, wives, well, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. Because, you know, that's just the, you know, the, the, the black hole, the awful text, the thing that... that um, um, I, I spoke on it my first wedding I did many decades ago. Uh, the couple asked me to speak on Ephesians 5. And uh, the... The parents of the uh, bride were liberal Presbyterians. And the mother of the groom was an atheist. <laughs> <coughs> During the wedding, as I was speaking through Ephesians 5, I saw the husband of the bride nudging his wife <laughs> at that key point. Father of the bride. Father of the bride. Father of the Bride, nudging his wife at that key point, to not great effect, not great humor, and the mother of the groom wouldn't talk to the groom after the uh, wedding. People do not like what God says. But we're not jumping right there. Um, I'm, a, I'm a chief suspect among the feminists of the world. I think they probably have my name on some list. Um, and I'm a conservative, but there's a passage that they always bring up, the feminists, or people who have been feminized, trying to take some heat sink to that awful passage. It's the preceding verse. I think I have it on the page here. Ooh, this Bible's upside down. Um, Ephesians 5. And it, right when it says, wives be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. That's verse 22. Verse 21, and the feminist will remind you of this, for not the best motives, the preceding verse is, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so they say, see, that undercuts everything that comes afterwards. Now, 
I'm not trying to get out of that because I think that is the important verse. That's the verse we have to look at. That's the verse that precedes the text that we're dealing with. That's the verse that is supposed to set you up for this. So we have to look at it. It is what's going to produce the tranquility in your marriage that you want. So when you're religious, and you claim to be, and when you're Christian, the, the, the nature of religion is that you are expressing a degree of human reverence to the God in question, regarding the God in question. You are bowing to this God, whether it's Krishna or Allah or Jehovah. Um, if you're a Christian, your idea is to revere Christ. Um, this is a religious question. This is not how much do you love your wife? Are you willing to do this for her? This is how much do you love Christ? And you have to keep it there. You have to pick it up there. You have to begin there. You have to always be grounded there that your relationship, your religion, is what you are representing, gentlemen. And if you are a poophead about it, if you are some little martinet, little Father Abraham, little, you know, well, the Bible says I'm in charge, so I'm making the decision. We're going to McDonald's. I know you wanted to go to Pizza Hut. We're going to McDonald's, which I could have done all my life, and I could have had more McDonald's. <laughs> Um, is this idea, I, again, ask yourself right now, is this idea of a hierarchical marriage, someone in command because they're supposed to be, someone obeying because they're supposed to be, bothersome to you for whatever reason? You don't have to answer me, you don't have to throw anything at me. Um, we want to assess the husband's uh, first because it gives, in its own right, it gives protection to the women, to the wives, as they hear, and they will hear tomorrow, what they hear, where they stand with the Lord regarding this. Because this whole thing, all of marriage is supposed to make the wife more secure, and if you just jumped right into what women are supposed to do, you just make them feel less secure. This will hopefully describe husbands, tell husbands what they need to be and do before Christ to be the kind of husband the Lord expects. And um, that's going to um, um, hopefully uh, settle any fears about putting up with your own particular uppityness, kick down the flight of stairs tomorrow. Um, Leslie's going to have some key things to say. She's not going to sit here docilely silent in this subject. She has got some, uh, we talked about it this afternoon, of, of areas that she's going to bring up that, that describe, when we talk about what particularly the men are told to do, uh, how that works. And hopefully that will give you some, uh, some benefits. Um, question whether your religion is right or wrong. it's so easy to think and this is something that hopefully I know All Souls is not a very churchy church too many people rest on the church reverencing Christ and they go to church 
not whether they reverence Christ. Would Christ still be reverenced if you were alone on a desert island? Would Christ be reverenced? Or do you, or do you count on the history of Christendom to reverence Christ? And because it's in the creeds, that's good enough. And it says big things in the creeds about Jesus. And you go to that church, or you are a member of that church. That's not enough. Because that won't make you what you're supposed to be as a husband. Now, your idea when you deal with reverence in God and Christ you start to do spade work about what you already think. My father, when he talks to people about their difficulties, he talks to them about what they, how they define God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. He starts to figure out where they got off the rails by what they think. Not theologically, but how they react to God. Separate from their church, separate from their training, just their gut. What do you think of God the Father? Some people say Harry Thunderer, you know, whatever. Do some spade work, because you, you may find that you just have this convenient religious myth, that it's the Christian American myth, and, and we uh, go along with it. Some of you like the pious, warmth, devotional sensation you get from it. Um, some people are into the deeper walk club of some sort of, you know, uh, some union of indentured theologians. Um, and they might have a level of knowledge about God that is like a Tolkien fan or something like that, um, but they aren't nice to their wives. Tragically, some of the most theologically pure churches, the men aren't nice to their wives. I heard recently from a young woman who married a young man. She was from not from the area, and she was so pleased to be in Moscow where men didn't shout at their wives in church. <coughs> and she went to a conservative, Bible-believing, I don't know what, what brand of church, but it was the kind of church where everybody was really big on being um, knowledgeable about the things of God, but the men weren't nice to their wives, even in church. They weren't even faking it in church. Now, it's a fearful thing, I have the top of page 25, to fall into the hands of the living God. If you have dumbed divinity down, if you don't have the right view of your God, you might want to spend some time getting there because it's the out of reverence for Christ. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, if it's going to come from that, you better have that. Now, I, I, I probably won't take the time to read. Uh, I recommend, what is it, Job um, chapter 37. Elihu is talking to Job at the end of the book. And it's great, it's a great chapter. But the, he starts off with, at this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Hearken to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go, and his lightning to the corners of the earth. Elihu is spanking Job, basically. He's the only one of Job's acquaintances, friends, who's right. He's the only one that agrees with God. Um, and he goes through the rest of the chapter telling Job um, what he doesn't know about God. And he gets to the end and he says, Shall it be told him that I would speak? 
did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? And now men cannot look on the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with terrible majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power and justice, and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Therefore men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. He's done at that point. The next chapter, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And then Job gets torn up by God. He gets torn up by this young guy, Elihu. And then God, it's a tag team match. And God comes in and trounces him royal on the same thing. But Elihu's vision of God is something that you, more than just that passage, but you need to go back to the word of God and reinvigorate your view of the divine. Jump away from theology. Jump away from the arguments you like to get into. Those are avocational. Your vocation is to know God. And this, your marriage, is going to rest on that. Now, at any point when you talk about authority, either in the leadership position or in the submissive position, a sense of judgment of the other person, the other party, starts to come up. He or she does not deserve this. She gives me grief. She's rebellious. Or he's a, you know, a navel. He is, um, he's not even a Christian. Or what, you know, some, he's mean. Or he, he doesn't know what he's talking about. We're not told to be subject to one another out of reverence for your spouse. It is not the merit of your spouse. It is great when your husband or your wife is a wonderful person. It does make it all much easier. Everything is a lot easier when even the Philistines, even the Gentiles, enjoy being with nice people and can find themselves being nice in response to nice people. So if you're nice to your spouse, yeah, it adds, it helps a wife submit to her husband when he's, she knows he's wise and loving. But we're not, we're not moved to it for that reason. Because then it would be all these dispensations not to do this stuff. We just have to say, you know, just check off. Oh, she's been bad today. I don't have to be considerate and kind and loving and caring and sacrificial. I don't have to be because she's rotten. Christ is the merit we judge. And you have to measure your Christianity on this basis because it is the measure of your reverence and your reverence for the Lord. He lets you know, and I think I quoted it already this week, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say. It always it causes the Lord Jesus to be a little bit miffed with you. And since it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God, I wouldn't want him miffed. And not only do you need to pick up your view of God's glory, but you've got to pick up his view of he chastises the sons whom he loves. You don't want to be on the chastisement end of things. So, Pay attention to these things. Now, the next thing we're looking at is this Ephesians 5. There it is, Ephesians 5, in all its glory, starting with the awful verse, skipping that one that says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, jumping right in there on the women. We're going to skim over that because the women are going to get that tomorrow. But I'm going to read through it, but we're not going to talk to it, okay? Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. 
as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is a profound one, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one, of you see, uh, each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul gets, you know, he, he's a perennial bachelor, gets to the end, and he, you know, the whole, he knows that the cleave to his wife is sex. He knows that, but he's saying, you know, your sex, the, the, those gymnastic times in the bedroom, are um, a great mystery. But they have... Um, Frank and I were talking about this afterwards yesterday uh, about the great um, the great point you know yeah we're all sweaty and all interested and, and all having fun but it has a point these are metaphors your relationship is a metaphor just the fact that you have it church Christ and the greater statement of, and when I am living in reverence to Christ myself how I live and the membership I try to create with my wife, whatever arena it is in, holiness, attitudes, sexuality, um, finance, uh, society, all those things are um, areas that I'm representing Christ in the picture. Paul doesn't give us a more of an explanation, but he just sort of holds it up there and says, what a mystery. And that's where you've got to come in and say, okay, I might never know the mystery of St. Paul did, didn't, but I also know where he sent me to stand in close proximity to it. That I know, I know what the subject is, and I know how I'm told to behave. Now, <clears throat> it's wonderful, it's, I've taught this for a lot, and some of you have heard me say this before. The, the text is to the person who is doing the action, not to the person who is policing the action. The texts on wives submitting are not to husbands to make sure their wives <coughs> do. It is to wives. Wives, be subject to your husbands. It doesn't say husbands, make sure your wives are subject to you. It tells the husbands what to do. It's a wonderful quality. Um, we don't want to find ourselves mimicking what we think a Christian relationship should look like, trying to craft it out of demands that, well, you better submit to me, woman, because otherwise, what will they say at church? And you and you got to do this. We got to look like this. Now we're building this. We're not we're not um, faking it. We're not dressing it up this way. It would not be like Christ if you did. And what, what did Christ do for you to bring you into the church? Did he just stand there and insist that you keep the law? No. He changed you. That's part of what you're being guided to do 
as a husband, is learning to change your spouse by how gracious you are. So, this is how I've... Uh, this is not a necessary biblical framework. It was a phrase that sprang to my mind because of my military background, Article 133 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, um, UCMJ, which I love. I loved it in the Navy. It had big charts of it on the wall in barracks and various places. And it was a small, like, uh, nine-point type on a poster that was like 24 by 72. And it was all the laws of the military. And uh, it read like the Law of Moses. I mean, it was, it was pretty moral, uh, pretty military. But Article 133 uh, could bring an officer up on charges for conduct not becoming an officer and a gentleman. Okay? So I was thinking of that, and I was thinking, what about the opposite? What is conduct becoming an officer and a gentleman? Because it's the military, the last vestige in our egalitarian post-enlightenment society, where hierarchy still works, for the most part. Where it's, hierarchy is still practiced, necessarily. And they take you to boot camp, and bad things happen to you. And when they take you to boot camp and bad things happen to you, they do that so they will break that hippie spirit in you and make you a soldier. Or a sailor, in my case. Not quite as tough as a soldier. We had boats. Now, it says in Luke 7, Roman centurion, great passage, For I am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the multitude that followed him, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. What? This was a guy, and I recommend that you think in these terms, not so you could turn your, your wife and into some sort of military uh, uh, boot camp situation, but to recognize that Jesus recognized. He said, the centurion wasn't trying to operate in a military way with Jesus. He was saying, this is just the way I think. I know you can command it to be done and it will be done. Because I understand command. I give them and I take them. Okay? Centurions are that, that, that active degree of officer, you know, probably like a major. Somewhere in there. Um, and um, we need to be thinking as men, and I hope that this image of a, a conduct becoming an officer and a gentleman might stick with you, not because it's biblical, but because um, it points you to these, uh, these obligations. Now, you don't want to think because it's conduct becoming an officer and a gentleman that you are an admiral. Um, I was not an admiral in the Navy. I was not even a commissioned officer. My father was a commissioned officer. Frank's father was a commissioned officer. Tim's father was a commissioned officer. Anybody else a commissioned officer? Your dad was a commissioned officer? Stephanie. Stephanie's dad. A lot of Naval Academy. Your, your dad. I was not. I was a non-commissioned officer. And it came home to me, you know, when I was a non-commissioned officer, I came up from seaman, airman apprentice, airman recruit, airman apprentice, airman, and then 
E4, which was the next rank up, which is a petty officer. And I was thrilled. When I made Petty Officer Third, I uh, put my chevron, sewed it onto my stuff, got uh, some ceremony where they did stuff to me or something, I don't know. Had my, my Dixie Cup hat on and I was salty. I was really salty, uh, which is key to, in the Navy to be salty. You had to curl your Dixie Cup hat. You, you, you'd get there at night and you'd roll it so the edge would just do a little flip like Popeye, you know. It wasn't regulation, but boy, it was supposed to be two fingers above your eyebrows, but you ran down to one. Now, Evan's an idiot. Uh, what's this have to do? I'm trying to save my marriage. Uh, so in the moment, I still have a picture in one of these books, one of these photo albums of me making Petty Officer Third. And I don't know how many years after I got out of the Navy, I suddenly realized what an insult I had endured. Can you imagine that your rank is petty, officer, <laughs> third class? It, I mean, that's the bottom. That's the bottom of the universe. And they tell you, right to your face, hey, you're a petty officer, third class. That's where you are, gentlemen. You're just a guy with a wife. You got a yard. You might have a few brats. You might have a, a dog. I don't know. That's it. You're a squad leader. You're E4. Nothing above. You're not an admiral, general, or a colonel. So don't act like you're an admiral, general, or colonel in the home. Understand that you're pretty close to the airman. Um, but we want to, with those warnings, look at the passages. We just read through Ephesians 5. It's Corinthians 11, which is about authority. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a woman is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Any man who prays or prays... I won't go into that. I don't want to talk about veiling of women at this point. Uh, verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a woman ought to have a veil on her head because of the angels. Also, I will not discuss that. Why the angels? I know, but I'm not going to tell you. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Wives, be subject to Colossians 3. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 1 Peter 3. Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your husbands, so that some, though they do not obey the word, may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives when they see your reverent and chaste behavior. And I want to skip over that, because we'll cover it tomorrow. We covered it last night, but down in verse 7. Likewise, you husbands, live considerately with your wives, bestowing honor on the woman as the weaker sex, since you are joint heirs in the grace of life, in order that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, I want to get something, something aside out of the way. It's a side comment over here that it didn't fit in the run of the text, but I want to just sort of remind you of certain things that aren't the case as we, uh, as we move through it. So I, I don't want to sidetrack you too much, but the idea of 
submission that is misunderstood sometimes takes the great, uh, the great things down to small things. And they think, both men and women, that it's most important that the wife submit to the big things more than the little. But the great things, theology, ideas, politics, um, those are ideas, folks, and you don't submit to ideas. You become just go along to get along sort of person. You become a brainwashed person. You're not obeying someone's command to have an idea. You have to understand, believe an idea. Be convinced. You have to be convinced of an idea. An idea has to convince you. And so many times, marriages, they, they share all their, their politics or their theology, where they go to church, things like that. But the husband can't ask to have her fry an egg and get it. You know, you're a petty officer. It's the fried eggs that you deal with. Those other things have higher authorities than a husband. Ideas have authorities like the revelation of God and reason and reality. They don't stem from a husband di dictating to you what God's like or, or, or some such thing. You can be part of that, but if you can't convince a wife she loves you, and you don't convince her about this idea, that means your argument probably isn't really good. She would be disposed probably to want to believe you and when you say something, but it's not required, I don't think, that a wife share her husband's ideas. It's nice if she does. It'd be good if he had good enough ideas that she would share, but it's something you have to convince somebody of an idea. Everything else Obedience can come from things that doesn't require, she doesn't deny the existence of the egg or the frying pan. Okay? It's not like, I don't believe those are there. They are, now, she could try that. You could try that, ladies. Hmm, does the bacon exist? Evan said I don't have to submit to ideas. Cook the egg. Okay, what I did is that we've got these three, four passages. Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 11, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3. Another prefatory remark. The nature of all natural governments is that they have some sort of prime directive. Okay? Sure, you think about these things, Evan. I can't remember. I, just like a wife can't have an idea dictated to her, I can't dictate an idea to you. I can just tell you what it is. And you can think about it, okay? That's what you're going to do. You're going to think about this idea. A natural government, like civil government, states have governments because God instituted them. Their prime directive is to police usurpation. In other words, all things that a government does centrally to its government is to keep citizen A from usurping something about citizen B or keep the enemy from outside the country from usurping the whole country, you know? This, we, they police. They provide for that policing. Parents... Uh, they work on an ex uh, a maturity exchange. They're trying to, their nature of their government is to take c completely immature agents and slowly mature them, handing off maturity to them until at 18, boop, out the door, and you hope it took. Um, husbands govern to effectuate marrying. What we have a wife for. She's not like a child, like a, a kid. I don't have to exchange maturity or police usurpation with her. My job is to 
make sure we're together. That's what I, the end the end of my task, the, the, the you know the victory sign at the end, mission accomplished, is when my wife and I have affected marrying. Now, maintaining that thought in your head and having done so in peace. Okay, so if you have that thought in mind, a lot of the petty bossinesses, a husband who gets the biblical idea into his head, and he starts to be bossy, if he starts to realize there's an aroma of discontent going on in the home, and she's drifting not closer, and not with greater peace, but further away and with more chaos, then he is not succeeding at what his prime directive is. God wants us to take a woman and enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life which he has given you under the sun, because that's your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun. This is your job. With her is to make it work for the pleasure and joy of, of a joining of the two of you. Um, So you're not successful if you give an order and she does it. You say, well, isn't that, if I say, honey, fry me an egg, and she does, you think all's right with my world. Don't consider that success. Success is when the egg gets fried and she is drawn closer to you in the process. If you drove her away, you weren't successful. Matter of fact, you were counter-successful. So, because we were working with this conduct, becoming an officer and gentleman, I naturally started thinking in my old, I couldn't remember my 11 general orders from the Navy, whatever they were, you got drilled on them constantly, I've forgotten all of them. I think there was a 12th general order, I report, I report all submarines surfacing on the grinder, sir. Uh, the grinder was the marching asphalt, unit, and so you report all submarines surfacing on the grinder. Um, it's not going to happen. That's the only one I remember, and it wasn't really one of the general orders. <coughs> these general orders, I just pulled out of these passages we just went through. The first general order, love your wife as a bodily member. You're supposed to be giving yourself up, love, Read the Corinthians 13. Not erotic love. We've got other qualities that we react to regarding erotic love. That whole mojo thing is what causes that. That's a, a cooperation. It's a signal I get from her. But love doesn't wait for the object to become lovely. Christian love, agape, does not insist on its own way, believes all... You know, you've read the passage. You give yourself up. Now... I'm talking with my brother and my father, because they're both in the ministry, years ago, and uh, we were talking about marriage problems that people had come to us. My brother said, and my father agreed, and both of them have done far more marriage counseling than I have done. Um, they said, there's far more rotten Christian marriages due to nice guy husbands. Not due to abusive husbands. Due to nice guy husbands. Because when they think they're supposed to give yourself up, it's supposed to be like Christ did. Not like giving up. Not like being whipped. 
not like wussing out or the correct term, an auxurious husband. It's, it's, it's not doing what she commands, doing what you command for her. You are doing things by your decision for her. Jesus died for us without consulting us. We didn't go, hey, could you have you know, God come down and die for us? We're, we'd like that. To, he didn't. He, his, his dominance was insistent, firm, on top of it, and a gift. It was kindly done for us. It's a membership issue, not just in terms of what you accomplish, what we were talking about dealing with everything in joint government and joint member, uh, government membership, but it's supposed to be thought of as a member, like your arm. An arm that actually you have a relationship with and you care for it. Have you ever had a hangnail? I've had them. And what's, you can't get it off your mind, right? You cannot get it. It catches on everything. Every piece of fabric, every move of your hand, and you find your nail splitting. So you're begging, pleading with any friend who has the nail clippers on them, right? You're going to find nail clippers no matter what. I get it. I get it. Uh, acid indigestion. In my pocket, for decades, I have carried Tums. Because I know what it's like to have my members be in a state that I, because it's too closely related to me, I need to resolve it. I need to resolve it now. But when people start to drift away from each other, when the divorce starts to happen, okay, you don't care as much about what's going wrong with the person because it doesn't hurt you as much. Your task is to make her more a part of you. I was going to yeah, okay, get something that, there. Um, one of the comments here says that you're supposed to be doing things that make her more beautiful for you, guys. And if you are becoming her servant in some sort of whipped way, um, you're not going to view her as beautiful. You're going to view her as some sort of taskmaster that's gotten control of you. Um, and... You're in, you end up doing things trying to make yourself more acceptable or beautiful to her. Um, that's that's not the way. But in what in however you choose to love your wife, um, what is it? As a bodily member, it should be helping her to become beautiful. Um, I can't even think of a specific example, but. Well, you probably have known whipped husbands. And you probably have known people who... And, and it's hard to talk to a whipped husband because and they've defined this all as their righteous duty to be a servant to their wife. They craft it all in Bible terms. But it's not like Christ. It can never speak clearly to bring a wife to repentance. Because Christ, though he served his disciples, he was their master and lord. When he washed their feet in the Last Supper, he says, yes, I'm your master and lord. And if I do this for you, how much more should you do it for each other? He was willing to serve them. He had come to serve 
as master and lord. And so sometimes the master and lord says, you do what I say. When you've done all that is required of you, you say, we've only done that which is required. When, uh, and you have to be, well, but, but a whipped husband can never say that. He can never anger the she. That's capital S. Or hurt her feelings. Or hurt her feelings. And since that sounds like it's not kind or whatever, we got, we'll deal with some other things that, that deal with that, but you have to make a distinction between how love and membership is guided by... Um, uh, uh, guides you to make a difference between those two categories. Um, I mentioned before, yesterday, the two, th the two crowns that Lewis talks about in The Four Loves. Uh, last night it was the paper crown, Sky Father, Earth Mother. Um, uh, tonight it is the crown of thorns. A sacrifice you make of your whole life. Men are willing to move everything from mountains to refrigerators for being with you women. We are honored by your presence. We're smitten with you. We like to play, play, <laughs> but um, I was going some, somewhere with that. <laughs> and so we will, we will give up everything for you. We will give up everything for you. We're not dying for your sins. Jesus died for your sins. We are serving in your life, earning home, the bacon, coming home, mowing the lawn, taking out the garbage, uh, spanking the kids, whatever joyful thing you get to do. Um, we're giving up so we can be with you. I, I know. It was in regard to your, um, that you say you grace her like Christ's washing of us with the word. Um, and in doing that, you want to be contributing to her advancement as a woman. Um, so if she is uh, good at art, then you do things for her that provide for her time to put effort into her artistic uh, endeavors so that she can become uh, more of an artist, and that makes her more valuable as a wife in the sense that she's got this quality about her. Or um, I happen to like the musician part. And Evan has been really uh, good to encourage me in my musician or my music endeavors. Oh, and the other thing is even just having the, the house here is because we saw that in the early days of our marriage, hospitality, um, inviting people over was what we did and that we were good at it. And he said, hey, you know, you're good at this. I'm good at talking to people. We should do this idea with a big house so that um, it advances what I do. So, and, and those sorts of things, she is becoming more of an asset, more of a, a great thing that is in your life. Um, it's like you'd work with your kids when that, in that age when they're, you're trying to help them decide where to go and you're encouraging, encouraging them as they come up with things and trying to help them figure out how to plan this idea ahead. You, you sit down with your, your wife about something, be it her cooking or her singing or her drawing or, or her uh, whatever, going back to school for something and say, okay, honey, how are we going to do this? 
you, 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 you take your authority and you use it to craft a better woman out of her in the way she enjoys the, her being built. You're not being, she's not being built into a, some sort of love slave for you. She's being built into who she is, that you wanted to have her as she was X number of years ago, but now you're building her into what you're going to want even more. That helps you sustain the avowed sexual membership. Is your, that's what you're laboring to do, to make her a better woman. And if you're always standing there hat in hand asking her permission to drive the car or asking her permission to have some money so you can go to McDonald's, it's always McDonald's. <laughs> she never wants to go to McDonald's. I had a bet with her the other day. I haven't collected it yet. We were driving back from Portland and uh, in a rented car and we were coming through Colfax and she always sees deer on that canyon coming out of Colfax. It was, it was dusk, deer were going to be out. I said, how many deer are you going to see? Are you going to see a deer? She said, I'm going to see five deers. Deer, deers. I'm going to see five deer. I said, you want a bet? <laughs> What's it going to be? Well, it was between an hour-long back rub, she would get, and she would come to me, come with me to McDonald's. <laughs> She's got to come to me, come to, and it was, it was great because she saw like three and then we crested, came out of the canyon, up into the Palouse, and then there was three standing right over there. Yeah. But it was outside the canyon. I get to go to McDonald's. <laughs> With my wife, because I want membership. <laughs> so, but, but building, you're, you're using love, you're giving yourself, like Christ, because she's a member of you, like you would take care of a hangnail, like you would take care of your antacid, you, you, you deal with it quickly, you want to build her better. Like the Lord washes us with the water of the word, presenting us to himself. It's a gift to you men. You're not trying to be a gift to her, you're making her a gift to you, by giving to her. The, uh, the Lord says uh, here in Luke 22, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as one who serves. <coughs> the second general order. This came from the Corinthians passage. Our rank should consider that the whole officer corps has a mother. And probably maybe somebody said this to you when you were dating, or, or to you girls as dating, how does he treat his mother? That's it. The Lord says to you, to remind us from being misogynist egoists against that, he says, hey, sure, women were made for you. After you, for you, not us, for them. But, Lord in his sense of balance, he could have had us men gestate the babies. Then we could have been in control of everything. <laughs> and you ladies could just be out sunbathing all the time or eating bonbons. Well, I don't know what you do. Reading romance fiction. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a cru kind of a crucial rule. The Lord just did it to us. He said, everybody's born of woman. Men come from women. So that reminder to us that in other axes, other ways of measuring authority in this life, your mom, and everyone here had one, is, is over you as a parent. The parent-child relationship should keep 
a certain degree of humility in you as a husband. That you say, I look up to a woman, my mother, and consequently that should, she might say, knock a rough edge off any kind of you know, uppityness you may feel. Third general order comes out of the Colossians passage. Do not be harsh with her. Now we, you know, the discipline in our home is a toaster oven. Uh, we use nice little handles on the end and you can swing them. They're not too heavy to pick up. You can swing them. That's not harsh, is it? What, what makes something harsh? First off, you've got to presume a negative circumstance. Not, it's not like, oh, don't ever say anything negative. Harsh is like cruel and unusual punishment. Harsh is when I go beyond, in the negative, what is required. Okay? To get it done. Because you are going to have to, as leader, sit the wife down at some point and say something that she doesn't want to hear. Leslie has some sharing to do. <laughs> so, when, when I have been corrected, I think there have been three times in my marriage. No, maybe a few more than that. Um, I can sit and listen to Evan tell me what I have, how high, how I have erred, um, unless it goes on too long. And if he gets too detailed or tries to explain it in too many different ways, just to make sure I'm understanding, eventually I'm in tears because it's like, yeah, I got it, I got it. So that would be, not that I really think he was being harsh, he was probably just... Clueless. <laughs> that would just be one thing to be careful of, um, is keeping it short and concise and um, assuming that she's bright enough to get it that quickly. Um, but then we also uh, were talking today about the uh, book Emma, by Jane Austen, and that there is a beautiful passage in there where Emma gets corrected by Mr. Knightley for um, ill behavior toward another person. A Miss Bates. Mm -hmm. And we were going to read, have Evan read that passage because it's actually, it's, it's um, the kind of correction that you just completely admire the guy. It's, for those of you who read the book or saw the movie, it's the, the women are going, oh my heavens, at this moment, where the girl's getting chewed out and by the love interest, by the guy. You know? And you're going to hear that she um, defends herself, and he doesn't let it go. He doesn't let it go. He doesn't give up, and he knows he's risking the relationship. He's risking that they would have a friendship, or what he really wants is her love. Um, but he's more concerned for the righteousness of the moment, the correct. And he pushes it only as far as was where it becomes harsh is when you go a step by your desire for vengeance, or since it's a negative conversation already, here's my chance to bring up everything. Okay? Whenever you go beyond the necessary, keep that in mind, guys. If you go beyond the necessary, if she's not going to, you know, like Emma does, starts to excuse it, you may have to stay in the rebuke mode, but um, you only take it as far as necessary. 
May I read this? <coughs> While waiting for the carriage, she found Mr. Knightley by her side. He looked around as if to see that no one were near, and then said, Emma, I must once more speak to you as I have been used to. A privilege rather endured than allowed. Perhaps I must still use it. I cannot see you acting wrong without a remonstrance. How could you be so unfeeling to Miss Bates? How could you be so insolent in your wit to a woman of her character, age, and situation? Emma, I had not thought it possible. Emma recollected, blushed, was sorry, but tried to laugh it off. Nay, how could I help saying what I did? Nobody could have helped it. It was not so very bad. I dare say she did not understand me. I assure you she did. She felt your full meaning. She has talked of it since. I wish you could have heard how she talked of it, with what candor and generosity. I wish you could have heard her honoring your forbearance in being able to pay her such attentions as she was forever receiving from yourself and your father when her society must be so irksome. Oh, cried Emma, I know there is not a better creature in the world, but you must allow that what is good and what is ridiculous are most unfortunately blended in her. They are blended, he said. I acknowledge, and were she prosperous, I would allow much for the occasional prevalence of the ridiculous over the good. Were she a woman of fortune, I would leave every harmless absurdity to take its chance. I would not quarrel with you for any liberties of manner. Were she your equal in situation, but Emma, consider how far this is from being the case. She is poor. She has sunk from the comfort she was born to, and, if she lived to old age, must probably sink more. Her situation should secure your compassion. It was done badly done indeed. You, whom she has known from an infant, whom she had seen grow up from a period when her notice was an honor, to have you now, in thoughtless spirits and the pride of the moment, laugh at her, humble her, and before her niece too, and before others, many of whom, certainly some, would be entirely guided by your treatment of her. This is not pleasant for you, Emma, and it is far from pleasant to me, but I must, I will, I will tell you truths while I can, satisfied with proving myself your friend by very faithful counsel and trusting that you will sometime or other do me greater justice than you can do now. Well, it's a great section. And when I saw the movie version, I was impressed because it never has him come back and apologize for speaking that way to her. It stands. And gentlemen... Sure, you risk in the moment. It seems like as she either defends herself or cries or gets upset at the correction, if you hold back from the heart, she will be grateful if her conscience is made alive by it. She is grateful because she has nothing to blame. Harshness gives defensiveness something to blame. If, if you come in to a situation to correct and exceed the negativity that is needed, the guilty soul knows what to point at and never repent. If you don't deal with those things, sure, you risk your marrying in the moment, but not correcting someone risks the marrying in a much bigger way. But you may not be harsh. Fourth general order, be considerate of her. That is out of the Peter passage. Likewise, you husbands, live considerately with your wives. Uh, consideration, oh, it sounds just like polite, you know, uh, standing up when, or giving her your chair, opening the door for her, things like that. 
which are nice to do. But consider it, the word, uh, the R and NASB says, uh, uh, understand your wife. And they're closer because the word is gnosis. G-N-O-S-I-S. Knowledge. Know. Know your wife. And you know your wife. You say, well, I'm sure I know her. We sleep together. We know each other biblically. That's not enough. You have to have enough to be responding to her, but what it produces, bestowing honor on her as the weaker vessel, the weaker sex, it's got to produce that. So you have to be a student, not only of her positions, but of her kind of mind. The, the way she is, the what kind of thought she has. Because sometimes guys, because they are more discreet, women think in one piece, men think in boxes, and men can take out discrete portions and go, okay, this is, I'll define this, and, and oh, I wish I could remember that joke about the guy uh, working on his car or something, and he looks upset, and the wife just invents this whole tragedy out of how he looks, and he's going, where's my wrench? That's his, his mindset. And, but you, because you've got that simplicity, it's a discreet quality. You're able to actually maybe make definitions about who she is and understand her better than sometimes she does herself. Mm -hmm. In those conversations, you can be the Oxford English Dictionary and, and, <laughs> and know, this is, is this what you're trying to say, honey? Why, yes, it is. Thank you very much. No, that, that has definitely happened. <laughs> and, because you're, you're, and you're not the one crying. And, and so you get to go, Okay, was it me or was it someone else? It was someone else. Okay, now we move on. And we break it down to um, you break it down to its parts. But you, you learn about her not only what her positions are, because sometimes nothing offensive to the ladies. Those positions are not constant. Okay? <laughs> At some some rule they picked up somewhere, and it wasn't in the military. They <coughs> decided that something about fickleness was like a right. John Locke gave them um, in the. So know who she is. You're going to be reasons referee of you and of her. You need to be able to almost speak outside yourself. That you speak in your authority voice of anointing that you. You stand over here and say, and the scriptures say, we both ought to do this, or reason is this, and, and referee the moment out of understanding of both of you. I'm going to open the door. Okay. All these bodies, hot day, and lucky it's not the sex night. Um, fifth general order, bestow honor on her. Understand her. And then you have this task of praising. And it's not hard to do because we like the way they look, you know. And they're always spending enough time on it. So you know they're going to come out of the bathroom looking pretty good. You got to go watch out because sometimes they'll come out and you'll think they look good, but they haven't put things on yet. So they, they look at you like, how could I look good? I haven't done anything. But honey, you're naturally beautiful. You're radiant. 
Um, we, we understand those sorts of compliments. But honor do anyone. If you, if you understand what you're doing when you honor, just like you understand what you're doing when you're husbanding, you're trying to affect marrying. Um, what you're doing in your honoring is you're giving the, the, the recognition of a dignity. Dignity is a position where you are in an up and down and honor is the recognition given of that dignity. You can honor down. It's not because she's the weaker vessel. I mean, how could I honor that? Is only the wife supposed to honor up? Well, she is. Every dignity has a recognition that can be spoken to. It says, outdo one another in showing honor in the scripture. So honor is supposed to be shooting everywhere in the Bible and the Christian saints. We're supposed to be recognizing the dignity, not lying about people and saying, oh, that, 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 makes, that dress makes you look great. When it doesn't, you honor that which really is the, the, the position. Um, and it comes from that understanding of uh, who she is. You are ennobling her where she stands. That it, and since your desire is to affect the marrying, remember the illustration of the, of the king and the prime minister? You're trying to make sure that she stays right up tight to you because you're supposed to be tight with her. That means that this up and down relationship is not supposed to be miles down there. You're supposed to be lifting her up, building her into something better. Like with Christ, Go back to Christ and the church. If you ever lose your moorings on this, just go, okay, breathe. Okay, now, what is Jesus trying to do with us? Present us to him how? And we with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to the next. We are being made more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We are being conformed to the image of his Son. He is trying to draw us closer and closer and closer to him. Not... You know, all go to heaven as little tiny small souls and God way out in the distance and never, you know, we might see him on special holidays in heaven. No, he's trying to draw us up close. You're trying with honor to bring your wife up, to give her an ennoblement that pulls her up closer to you and to your stature. It's a, uh, I had a little, what did I right there on the side? Oh, yeah, because we read this morning when our, we, yes, we, yeah. we, we, we do Bible reading in the morning with, uh, few people that are here and prayers. And we were reading this morning out of Esther about Esther being chosen by Ahasuerus, Xerxes, and uh, um, uh, and how she, and Leslie pointed out, what a party he threw after he had picked her as a wife. Just mm -hmm. holiday for everybody. All the taxes were, were it just he just partied it up because I've picked a wife. She wasn't just another gal in the harem. She moved from the harem to number one wife status. And mm -hmm. although you don't have a harem, you do get to move her in such a way that she feels that ennoblement that Vashti lost in Esther and Esther gained. But you're, you're working that out uh, for her. Now, in the text here, I didn't... Because uh, uh, I had blended these together out of this um, <coughs> Peter passage. This last half of the paragraph under fifth general order could be a sixth sixth standard general order, because it shifts to your fellowship with each other. Since you are joint heirs in the grace of life. Okay? Your, your move as a husband is not only um, 
honoring her as a woman, the weaker sex, that's true good Christian, non-Christian. Um, it's not just understanding that works Christian, non-Christian, but when you have a Christian wife, you are joint heirs. And when she's a Christian, that failure to achieve membership, when you don't make it, when you let this slide, the Lord says, your prayers will be hindered. Now, it doesn't say why. Now, does it mean that such a person wouldn't pray? It would hinder you from praying? I, I suppose the English could be worked that way. I don't feel that. I, I don't want to trust my feelings on this. But consider what you will. But I think the Lord's not going to listen to you. He makes a number of other comments about not listening to the prayers of the unrighteous. And the prayers of the righteous man availeth much. If you are pushing your wife down or not lifting her up, are not making her more like the bride that Christ is trying to make of the church, if you don't find that fellowship, that recognition of her sisterhood with you in Christ, uh, then um, God's going to be um, less responsive and you're going to be without a, your, your marriage is going to be doing this, falling apart. Even if it never goes away, you will not feel that sense of joining. The sex won't be there. The membership won't be there. You'll be civil to each other, and it will be distant and in-house divorce. And God won't even listen to you. Because what you contributed to it, you did not treat her with the kind of honor and consideration that you should have, and you did not lift it up in fellowship because she's your sister in Christ. Well, those are... And I'm not saying, because this is... A, a spiral bound color cover typeset book that that covered all of the general orders. Those are the ones I saw right on the surface of looking at passages about family authority focusing on what the men are supposed to do. You can go back over them and see if you can even get more out of them. More, more tasks for you to do. More direction in the virtue of God about how you're to be as men. Um, what you will need I'm, I presume something coming in. I have a military background. Some of you do, family anyway, or you understand the military. Uh, I was in the military. Uh, I like the military. Uh, I like war. What else do I like? Explosions. Um, but sometimes you can talk about this government of family government. You know, if you had a child-rearing course, you know, Boy, I'd be proud with parents. And you'd be talking to a bunch of American egalitarian John Lockean parents who want to make their kids behave, and you tell them how to do it, and they're glad for the advice, but they still don't know how to do it because they think like a modern. Okay? Because when you're attempting to do this, if you do not believe that you are actually not just on the schematic, not just because, well, God said, well, somebody's got to be in charge, flipped the coin and said, oh, looks like it's the guys. He didn't. He made man. He made woman for man. So, uh, I don't think you should stress that, Evan. This is uh, 2000, <laughs> 2012. We're moderns now. That's the problem. You're not going to be able to go, go after these things without them blowing up in your face for this reason. I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes. It comes out of book not often read, Preface to Paradise Lost. Anybody? One, two, 
Okay. Rarely read. Chapter on hierarchy. Because he's talking about Paradise Lost and the criticism of Paradise Lost and preparing yourself to read Paradise Lost. And so he's talking about the ancient mind here. This thought is not peculiar to Milton. It belongs to the ancient Orthodox tradition of European ethics from Aristotle to Johnson himself. And a failure to understand it entails a false criticism not only of Paradise Lost, but of nearly all literature before the Revolutionary Period, which would include the Bible. And the Revolutionary Period would be the 1700s, late 1700s. It may be called the hierarchical conception. According to this conception, degrees of value are objectively present in the universe. Everything except God has some natural superior, and everything except unformed matter has some natural inferior. The goodness, happiness, and dignity of every being consists of obeying its natural superiors and ruling its natural inferiors. When it fails in either part of this twofold task, we have disease or monstrosity in the scheme of things until the peccant being is either destroyed or corrected. One or the other it will certainly be, for by stepping out of its place in the system, whether it step up like a rebellious angel or down like an uxorious husband, ooh, on our subject, it, it has made the very nature of things its enemy. It cannot succeed. So I remember when I read that many years ago, for the first time, um, this is this is unthinkable. This is brilliant. <laughs> and I, I gave a lecture in Lynchburg, Virginia, on it, and um, I scared the people because they were all teachers from colonial state schools, all teaching on the wonders of George Washington. And I was telling them, you know, guess what? The American Revolution was sin, and, but. <laughs> don't want to get off the get off the subject here, um, but look at what he's saying. He's saying this world is our world since the revolutionary period has been an egalitarian, Lockean, Enlightenment, Rousseau, Voltaire, all those guys contributing to a notion that you're equal to each other, and equality is just a fiction. It's a fiction of law that allows the law courts to be more just because it doesn't presume anything about your status when it, when it deals with you uh, criminally. Gives everybody open access. It's a handy fiction. It's a nice fiction, but it's a fiction. Now, if you don't think that, if you don't think that, this is the problem. And Lewis goes on. He is not done with us. Now, if once the conception of hierarchy is fully grasped, we see that order can be destroyed in two ways, by ruling or obeying natural equals, that is, by tyranny or servility, two, by failing to obey a natural superior or to rule a natural inferior, that is, by rebellion or remissness. And these, whether they are monstrosities of equal guilt or no, are equally monstrosities, he said, I didn't quite follow that. Evan, you've been thinking about it a long time. Explain it to me. I will. <laughs> when two equals, one tries to rule the other, he has to resort to tyranny. If the tyrannized agent submits, they become servile when it's two equals. Okay? 
a, a overlord, an actual higher being, doesn't have to resort to tyranny to run you because there's a natural uh, obeisance to the higher lord. But here's where it becomes a problem for you. You've just been told all these instructions about lordship and how it's to be carried out and that there is a height in family and, and Christian wives and Christian husbands need to, in membership, deal with that truth. And more often than not, most Christians I know, though they never give up their Lockean premises, they try to live in accord with St. Paul in a believing conservative church. Okay, they tried to, yeah, my husband's in charge. His final decision, whatever that might be. But what, what the problem is, it's not just true when equals try to rule each other or submit to each other, but when people perceive that they are equals, they perceive a tyranny. Okay? So when a husband that God has made higher than you, if you're the wife, not saying men, I'm saying husband. Okay? husband higher than you, if you believe he isn't, any effort he makes to guide the situation, even in his mind, might come across as tyrannical. It's hard for him to get the words out, honey, fry me an egg. You know, because uh, the egg is important. <laughs> now, th th this is something that... Uh, um, I, I want you to go back and look at this and go, okay, there are tyrannical husbands, there are servile wives, there are whipped husbands, there are rebellious wives, all because either they fail to rule when they should, they're remiss, or they fail to submit when they should, they are rebellious, or they submit when they think they shouldn't. When they think they're equal and they submit, they become crushed and servile. And that's not the kind of wife you want. That's not the kind of person who's being made more into the bride of Christ. That's being some, you know, victim of the Soviet Union. This crushed serf. Um, and you don't want tyrannical husbands. But tyrannical husbands come on when people are closer to equal they get louder and louder and more insistent and insistent on their authority because they're trying to make up for being equal to the person they're trying to rule. So it causes tyranny in the husband when he thinks they're equal, and it is viewed as tyranny when even if he doesn't have a bad attitude and the wife just doesn't want to hear herself told to fry the egg. And he's a tyrant because my equal's trying to rule me. So you need to not only know your God, go back to the beginning, Reverence for Christ. Where is, where is your heart? Where is your heart regarding your God, not regarding your spouse? Not her merits, not your merits, Christ's merits. And am I living in a situation that I have been delegated to by my God? My God has placed me here. My God has told me what to do. And out of love for my God and out of reverence for my God, he even tells servants to do that, slaves to obey their masters as the Lord because... They don't want to defame the gospel. So, and the second thing is this hierarchical notion. You could go, okay, I love Jesus, we love Jesus, wife and me love Jesus, and we go to a good solid church, and we've been in a Bible study, we've learned all these things about how we treat each other and how I should be as a husband, and you never question the 
sociological philosophy that you were handed in grade school that taught you one man, one vote, that taught you that was somehow written in the stars. And we're going to get to that tomorrow because we're going to get more C.S. Lewis on the matter. And he actually kicks equality down a flight of stairs in talking with a woman in that hideous strength. And it's very meaningful to her marriage. Okay? Got it? It's not that late. I can keep talking. Is there anything I missed? Um, I'm sure side tomorrow notes. night will be much longer. <laughs> we'll make up. Uh, oh, here's another one. Here's another. Just warning you, just general things that occur to Christians when they hear things they don't like. Okay? I'm, I'm telling you what your mind might say to you. One of the standard things, as a pastor I've heard it any number of times after I've preached a sermon, not just this subject, any sermon someone didn't like. They're not, they want to come up and talk to you afterwards, and they want to talk to you about where it doesn't apply. <laughs> they come up with all, well, what if, uh, what if he told you, what if he said, not fry an egg, but he said I had to sleep with my, the, the, the man next door? What about that, pastor? They start, well, don't do it. I, mean, I thought that was pretty obvious. But, <laughs> but, they're, but they, they, they spend their time thinking, trying to think of lists of where they don't have to obey the Lord. Don't make, take your time thinking of lists of how you don't obey the Lord. Waiting, dear God, I hope he does in his folly try to make me do something immoral so I could disobey him with a certain satisfaction. <laughs> you were told to learn this. Start coming up with a list about what you're supposed to do, gentlemen. Not where you don't have to, but where you know you do. Just for the sake of your soul. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Thank you for your mercies. In your son's name, amen. Amen.